Greetings and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through His Word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding His Word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and in this episode we'll be discussing theological triage. My guest this week is Dr. Tim Miller, Associate Professor of New Testament at DBTS. Dr. Miller, thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm grateful for the invitation. Now, I said we're going to be talking about theological triage. That's maybe a, a term that people are unfamiliar with. What does that mean? What do we mean when we're talking about theological triage? Yeah, so this idea comes up with uh, from Al Mohler. Uh, in a 2006 article he wrote, he was talking about defending the faith in the context of the book of Jude, that we need to defend the faith against threats on the inside, threats from the outside in this warfare that we are called to be engaged in. He took the idea of triage from the medical field and applied it to theological systems. And what he was saying was that just like in a medical field, when uh, there is a medical emergency, a nurse or a doctor would take a look at the problems that the, the, the patient is presenting and determine what level of difficulty or what level of challenge they're facing and then order, their, uh, order everything on the basis of that. So the person who has a gash, for instance, on their head is going to take priority over uh, the person who has intense uh, pain somewhere, but it's it's not evidently going to going to hurt them in the short term. So it's the ordering of uh, medical issues and then dealing with them in that order. And he then took that and said, in our debates intra-church, in our debates uh, with the culture that's coming to us, what we need to do is we need to determine our doctrines. What are our first order doctrines, second order doctrines, third order doctrines? And on the basis of that, then we can determine how do we defend those and uh, to what degree do we go to the extent of defending those? Yeah. Now, um, why would we need to do something like that? What, what would be the purpose of, of trying to order doctrines? Yeah. We need to know, uh, for instance, what distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever. And this is where he's going to put that as a first order doctrine. Uh, if we don't know who's a believer and who's not a believer, then we don't know who we're defending and who we're not or what we're defending. We've got to know what, what's there. But beyond that, we also need to know to what degree can I separate from one who claims to be a believer? Uh, it, we believe in separation over doctrinal matters because some things really do matter. And if you get it wrong, uh, you begin to challenge the gospel. You begin to do church opposite what the scripture says, those sorts of things. So we need to know not only what distinguishes the church from unbelief, uh, but we also need to know what's important enough that I actually would have to uh, separate from one who claims to be a brother uh, in regard to doctrinal matters. So in some ways, this reason we're talking about this now is in our series, we've been dealing with separation and fundamentalism. We, we've talked about primary separation, separation for those who deny essentials of the faith and secondary, those who are compromising yes. the gospel and the secondary, they're believers, but they're compromising the first they're unbelievers. And, mm -hmm. and part of theological triage is figuring out. So is this denial put them in the category of being an unbeliever? Does it put them in the category of being a believer who's wrong enough to withhold fellowship or a believer that we can 
disagree and still maybe uh, have fellowship and, and different levels of fellowship and those kinds of things. And so that's that's kind of the purpose yeah, of theological that, triage. That's exactly right. And in a perfect world, uh, we would wish that uh, theological triage wasn't necessary. We could say, well, uh, what does the scripture say? And we could all agree to that. But the fact is that we're fallen. Uh, and that affects the way that we interpret the text and interpret one another's understanding of the text. A lot of things that go into that. Um, uh, so we're fallen, but we're also finite. And so there are uh, other people who haven't quite understood issues yet. And that, that takes some wisdom to determine that. But the finiteness and fallenness leads to theological diversity. I wish there wasn't theological diversity in a perfect world. There wouldn't be. But because there is, theological triage is, becomes necessary. Now, you mentioned Moeller kind of coining this phrase back in his article in 2006. Others have, have come up with other models or frameworks as well. So let's, let's think about just a, a few examples. Let's begin with Moeller. Yeah. What, what does he suggest as a framework for doing theological triage? So Moeller's divided it into three doctrines or three orders of doctrines is what he says. He calls the first, the first order doctrines. And uh, he says, these are the ones that are most central and essential to the Christian faith. And he classifies these in such a way that if you deny them, and that's a key, key component here, if you deny them, then eventually you will deny Christianity. And the word eventually is an important component of that too. So if you deny them, you will eventually deny Christianity. And so believing uh, many of these, uh, th there are, uh, so those who believe these would be outside the church be um, essentially considered unbelievers, though uh, there may be some misunderstanding, those sorts of things, but they're first order. And, and he classifies the Trinity as something here. So if somebody denies the Trinity, and I think the language there of deny is really helpful here because Moeller's going to say there are going to be new believers who uh, you know, if you ask them questions, they didn't, they don't quite understand all the nuances of the Trinity because when we become believers, it's not like, uh, it's a download mechanism in our brain. And all of a sudden we've got it all right. Uh, but he says denial is the important thing here because a true believer who, uh, the Holy spirit has come, uh, to indwell and they're engaging doctrine. They're in the church. Uh, they should not deny these things. So, um, the Trinity is one the deity and humanity of Jesus. And then he adds justification by faith. And I appreciate that. I think, I think that's accurate, but he begins to, uh, to reveal to us that there are going to be differences of opinion on what a first order doctrines are. Um, I would certainly put it there. Uh, but you know, we look back in the history of the church and you've got a guy like C.S. Lewis, who talks about mere Christianity. And he talks about the hallway. If you've read the book, you know, you know this analogy, everybody's in the hallway and uh, we need to choose a certain door. Uh, but he includes Catholics and, and, and those who would believe in not justification by faith, justification by works in that. So he, uh, Moeller though, adds that justification by faith and then authority of scripture. So uh, he doesn't necessarily use the words inspiration, but, but he's talking about the authority of that text, that that's what governs life. And he puts all those as the first order doctrine that again, if you deny that you'll eventually deny the Christian faith and therefore uh, should be uh, excluded from the church, 
Um, but should that, that's the first order level of doctrine. Now you bring up the example of Lewis, and I, I don't want to get into it now. I just want to let everyone know. Hopefully, we'll come back to the little bit of the question of what do you do with people who have things in the wrong order? Yeah. Right. So he would maybe put justification by faith as a second order yes, doctrine or something I think like he that. Would. So how do you respond to that kind of an issue? That's something we'll come back to later. But yeah, let's keep on thinking about more. So he's got first order doctrines, <clears throat> and then what would be second order doctrines? Yeah. So second order doctrines, he labels as doctrines believers disagree over and which create significant boundaries between believers. So now he's talking about believer to believer, not believer to unbeliever, but believer to believer. And these pertain mostly to the denominational level. Uh, you know, he's a Southern Baptist and uh, he views things differently than, let's say, a Presbyterian. And so he would put things like the meaning and mode of baptism. Uh, he also includes in this women as pastors. Um, so in pastoral or leadership positions within the church, he says that that's not a first order doctrine, because that's not a determination of whether you're within the Christian fold or not. But it has significant ramifications for uh, the life of the church. And so on these second order doctrines, these are the things that we can congregate as churches around so that uh, this is what if, if somebody disagrees with you at this level, uh, you likely would not be found in the same church with them. And then Third order doctrines. What are third order doctrines? Yes. Yeah, so for Moeller, third order doctrines are those where Christians disagree, but can remain in the same church. So uh, again, aligning these in relation to the church, then you've got the first order doctrines are those who we would say are outside the church. Second, they may be inside the church, but we're going to split churches over these matters in the sense that we're going to have, you may have your church over here and, an, and another church over here, Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, those sorts of differences. But then these third order doctrines are things where even among the assembly here at Inner City Baptist Church, um, uh, the pastors may disagree with one another. Congregational uh, people may disagree with one another. And it's okay to do that. Now, Moeller, the only example that he gives is debates over eschatology uh, with that. But I'm sure that he would place quite a number of things in there that, um, you know, are not going to separate churches, or at least should not. I mean, weird things have separated congregations, but but they shouldn't separate congregations. Believers should be able to say, I disagree with you, but that's okay. Yeah. Now, Moeller's not the only person or the, even the first person to think about these things, but but since then others have have come up and, and tried to give other kinds of categories. I know you've you've read a few different examples of this. Uh, what are some other examples of people who've tried to put together a framework for doing theological triage? Yeah, maybe I'll just mention two others. As you mentioned, the idea of uh, theological triage, though that that analogy, I, from all I've read derives from Mulder himself. Uh, he's not the only one who's thought about these categories. I mean, you can go to some early church uh, material that begins to think through what should we separate over and how can we form a church. Um, but since Moeller, there have been a couple of others who've, who've uh, come along and have written some works in which they try and uh, work through these same categories. Uh, so I'll just mention two. One of them is Eric Taunus. And he wrote a book, Life's Biggest Questions, in 2011. And he labels his four categories. So instead of Moeller's three, he's got four. He labels his categories. The first is absolutes. And under here, he would define those things that are core beliefs of the Christian faith. 
uh, that, again, you have to believe in order to be uh, a believer. In his book, he actually has uh, concentric circles that become larger, and in the center are these absolutes. And then from the center, uh, he expands. The next group then is convictions. These aren't core beliefs. Uh, these are things that there may be disagreements among believers on, but they have significant impact on the church and on ministry uh, ministry function. So again, similar to Moeller, these are the sorts of things that would divide congregations. And then third, opinions. So again, you've got the absolutes, the convictions, then opinions. These are less clear, but generally are not worth dividing over. And then he's got the fourth category, and, and then I'll talk about uh, categories three and four. The fourth category are questions. So opinions and then questions. And questions are currently unsettled issues. If I had to uh, pinpoint Taunus, I would say that what he's saying is uh, Moeller's three categories are good, but we need a fourth category here. And that fourth category is things that nobody should even really have a very definitive uh, viewpoint on. Uh, so he's just expanding the categories to add that one extra layer of things that are questions rather than opinions. And I think maybe it's along this line that there are certain things that in Scripture we should have an opinion on. And uh, but we maybe don't separate over opinions on things. And then there are other things where maybe you shouldn't have an opinion on it. Uh, you know, um, maybe questions, some questions about angelic beings and that sort of thing. Uh, you may have an opinion on it. You may not. It's a question that um, certainly doesn't rise to the level of importance that should ever divide anyone. So he adds that fourth category. And in some ways, it's interesting, you know, Moeller's categories are seem to be focused a bit more on what are the doctrines and what role do they play. Tana seems to almost be approaching it more of how certain should we be? Yes. How how strongly should we hold to these things and then be willing to fight over them? And then both of them are are talking about something similar, but they're approaching it from a different angle. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And in that way, they're complementary. Maybe Moeller's looking at it from the bird's eye view, uh, whereas Taunus is saying, okay, from my own perspective, how do I view my own embrace of doctrines? And then how does that flesh itself out? Yeah. Now, now one final example. You actually did a book review, I think, on this book by Gavin Ortland about a year or so ago on our seminary blog, uh, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. Yes. So what, what framework does he give? Yeah, so uh, Gavin is a really gifted writer, and he, he's been writing some things in the last couple of years that have really taken off in terms of number of sales of books and that sort of thing. He's just really gifted, and so he's applied his thought to this topic in, in a really creative and I think ultimately helpful book, though you can read the review. I do have a few criticisms there um, that I mentioned. But he has four categories similar to Taunus. The first is essential doctrines. Uh, and he says these are doctrines essential to the gospel. And those who reject are unorthodox. And again, the key here is those who reject are unorthodox. They're outside the bounds of orthodoxy. So here he's not even trying to say whether they're believers or not. He's saying orthodoxy. And, uh, and I think that that's helpful. Um, and he labels two expressions here, the Trinity and justification by faith as examples of that first category. So in many ways, 
Moeller's first order doctrines and uh, Ortland's essential doctrines overlap. He's got a second category, urgent doctrines. So essential, then urgent. Uh, these are urgent for health and practice of the local church, he says. They don't determine if you're a Christian necessarily, but are determinative of the type of church you would attend. Again, so you get this theme of uh, division by means of the relationship of the assembly, the, the uh, denomination or the church that you would go to or the, the uh, types of people who would gather together theologically. And his examples here are baptism, church government, women in ministry, and so very similar to uh, the examples that were given by Moeller in that his second order doctrine. Uh, then Ortland has a third, important doctrines. And these are important for faith, yet not important enough to warrant separation at the church or ministry level. So Orland's trying to take a step back from just the church level, and he's saying, even if we're engaged in other forms of ministry with other people, uh, these are the sorts of things that, that we could be involved with one another on. Uh, they're important for faith, but not important enough to separate at the church or ministry level. And then he adds along this line, eschatology, the length of creation days, and then he adds Calvinism and Arminianism, which is interesting because in his book, he also puts a footnote. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, it was a footnote. Maybe it was in the, in the main text. But um, he does say, we should note that with this issue, your beliefs tend to impact your overall theological view or worldview. And for that reason, the implications can sometimes move this debate up to the previous level. And so I think you're beginning to see then that, that, uh, that there's some debate over where to put some of these things in these different categories. And then he has the fourth category, unimportant doctrines, uh, for which gospel witness and ministry uh, collaboration, or there are unimportant doctrines for gospel witness and ministry collaborations. And these examples he gives are how many angels exist, uh, the nature of the seven thunders in Revelation. Uh, if you've read that, uh, you know, the, John says there were seven thunders. What, what exactly do those pertain to? We're, we're not sure. Uh, so these are similar to Taunus. They're things that perhaps we might have some opinion on, but if somebody said, hey, look, I don't really have an opinion on that, we would say, okay, that's that's fair. So he, he divides it into that four doctrine category again. Now, as we think about all th three of these models and even others that perhaps some have put out, what are some, some strengths of, of utilizing models like this? And what are some potential weaknesses? Yeah, I think the strengths are that it, it makes us think about doctrine and the importance of doctrine. Uh, one of the things that I just read in reference to the Calvinism-Arminianism debate is the idea that your theology has practical implications. And so we need to think not just about, okay, so what does somebody believe? But we need to also think about how does that influence their lifestyle? How does that influence the church? And I think I mean, that's a huge question. How does that influence the church? And if in fact that doctrine were to be embraced by the church, what direction would the church take? One of the things Moeller says uh, in, in his first order doctrine are the things that will eventually make you leave the faith. So he's, he's including some things in there. Uh, and obviously he doesn't have an exhaustive list, 
But I think he would he would be a little more loose with that uh, first order doctrine than it appears to me uh, some of these other guys would be because he's trying to sniff out, okay, what kind of doctrines might come along that would eventually lead to the decay of truth such that the gospel is compromised? Not merely that doctrine itself compromises the gospel, but that the effect of that doctrine does so. And so I think that if we add that layer, as I think Mulder did, uh, that's a very useful category for us to begin to think through things to uh, to address. Yeah. And in some ways, all, all, all the three of these models are emphasizing what we might call fundamentals of mm-hmm. the faith or essentials of the faith. There are certain doctrines that if you don't hold these, you don't have Christianity anymore. Yes. This is, this is at the heart of what Christianity is. And there's other doctrines that aren't. Mm-hmm. And so they're recognizing these kinds of distinctions. Um, it seems to me as well that another potential strength of these models is, seems that all of them are saying at some level, Christians are going to have divisions because of doctrinal beliefs, can still recognize they're Christians and can actually say, but it's good for us not to be united in every aspect of the Christian life, such that churches can't have their own distinct theological emphases, and it's not sinful yes. to have that. Because occasionally you do seem to almost get the, the mindset that the fact that you have a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church is inherently sinful. Right. And it should be like reversed hmm. at some level. Yes. Um, but all of these are recognizing, well... No, actually, these beliefs are significant enough that we should actually have these kinds of divisions, even between professing believers. Yes, and and I think that that gets to a really challenging issue that you know, as we deal with doctrine, you have to come up against. I I went to Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania uh, for my PhD, and I had always been in Baptist circles. Forever. Uh, that, that's just everything I knew. And even growing up, I, I was in some churches that really looked askance at the Presbyterians. I mean, uh, do they really believe the gospel? We're not quite sure. And so going to Westminster was a really rich experience for me because here I sat around the table with guys who loved the Lord. There was no doubt about that. They loved the word. And we'd strongly disagreed about doctrine, about baptism, about church polity, and those sorts of things. So it's healthy to recognize sometimes that um, there is that diversity. I wish it wasn't there. It shouldn't be there. Um, Hopefully one day they'll repent. (laughs) That's right. Um, But, you know... so, so I, and I think that that comes to play in, I think, two of the potential weaknesses we could see in, in these systems. Um, Moeller actually mentions both of these. He says the, the error of the liberal was that the liberal made everything to be a third order doctrine. It didn't matter what you believe. So uh, virgin birth, who cares? Uh, you know, you, you, you love God, you love people. Okay. Well then, you know, you're, you're in. Um, and, and so doctrine didn't matter. And this is a great fear of mine for the younger generation that, and, and as you've been doing this podcast with pastor door and, and working through the, the challenge, the fear often is that you have people who give in to, you know, we don't really need to care about these sorts of things. And, 
as Moeller warns, that that can lead to doctrinal aberration and eventually a denial of the gospel, which we saw in many liberal churches. They they lost those churches because of that. So that that's one side of the danger. On the other side of the danger um, is making everything a first order doctrine, right? So um, so taking literally anything and saying we have to have complete unanimity on this doctrine, on everything in order for us to, uh, to be able to fellowship. And now Moeller, I, I disagree with his, uh, his assessment here because, uh, you know, I, I come from fundamentalist circles and I didn't see the type of fundamentalism that he's talking about, but he says that was the error of the fundamentalist because the fundamentalists took everything and made it a first order doctrine. And I don't doubt that there were some who did that. Uh, the history of the movement that I've been in certainly did not do that, but uh, that is certainly an error that we have to guard ourselves against. Yeah. Now, I, as we think about these models, it seems to me one of the biggest weaknesses in them is that, maybe not an inherent weakness, but, but just the, the problem of trying to implement them is figuring out what doctrine should actually fall in what category. Mm, yes. We've already had some discussion. Even the people creating these models sometimes seem to be struggling. Exactly where should I put yes. this kind of a thing? I remember I had a discussion a few years back uh, about the issue of like worship styles. And mm. I said, I think one of the problems is a lot of, a lot of people are saying worship's a third order issue. Don't worry about it. And other people are saying worship's, worship styles are a second order issue and therefore we should divide over it. Yes. And how do we figure out which one it is? Uh, now, I, I'm not going to answer that one right now. <laughs> um, but, but what kinds of things could, could potentially guide us in determining the, the relative importance of doctrinal issues? So this is where I think Taunus's book probably comes in most helpful. He gives seven categories that he works through to try and classify things according to, according to his scheme, the four categories. I, I do actually think three categories is probably sufficient and, and the easiest. Um, but, but according to his assessment, there are seven things that he looks for. And the first is biblical clarity. So how clearly does the scripture speak to a particular issue? And of course, this is part of the reason why we sometimes disagree because, uh, you know, there there are passages where somebody says, well, it says this and, 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 you know, the grammar supports possibly more than one interpretation. So if the scripture speaks clearly on it, then it should move up and not necessarily always that it just automatically becomes first order doctrine. But biblical clarity does push one, push the doctrine further up. Second, relevance to the character of God. We are a theistic religion uh, because we believe that God is uh, God. And uh, because of that, the things that pertain to the doctrine of God have massive implications and ramifications for the way that we do church and the doctrine that we hold. So the closer that doctrine pertains to the doctrine of God, I, I, the, the further up you might find a doctrine. Third, he says the relevance to the essence of the gospel. And here, I think he's referring to justification by faith, that the gospel, the good news that the Lord Jesus Christ came to die for sinners in their place. Uh, and so to the degree that the doctrine impacts the gospel, that gospel, uh, then it moves up on the scale. Uh, 
Fourth, biblical frequency and significance. How often in scripture is it taught and what weight does scripture place on it? Now, this one is, is, is not my favorite category because we recognize there are some things that the scripture just doesn't speak with level, a great level of frequency to. Now, the personality of the Holy Spirit, for instance. Um, not very many passages I could turn to you where it's like definitive, here it is. But um, I think that's a very important thing. That's an important doctrine uh, that develops out of Trinitarianism. And so it's not mentioned frequently, but I think it's important. Uh, nevertheless, I think he is right that frequency and significance, and often those two things go together, signify where, uh, or at least push up a doctrine higher into the scale. Uh, his next one is effect on other doctrines. And this comes alongside, again, Moeller recognizing that our doctrine Im uh, impacts other doctrines. And then uh, the consensus among Christians, this is the sixth one, past and present. So how have Christians thought about this in the history of Christian doctrine? If it's something that there's been, uh, everyone's unanimous about it, but these days there's, there's disagreement. Well, maybe we should actually push that higher up because maybe that's just an error of our own culture rather than, uh, you know, sourced out of scripture. Uh, and then finally, the effect on personal and church life. And I'm glad he added this element because uh, it, it we should evaluate uh, the impact of a doctrine on the lifestyle of the person and the, the effect that that's going to have on the church as a whole. Uh, so he takes these seven together and, you know, he, it's not as though it's it's an easy process to add anything to these, and, and they're all uh, they all range a little bit. Uh, but I think it's a good starting point to start thinking about why would we label things higher on the scale versus lower. And to to go back to an example, uh, you you brought up Calvinism versus Arminianism. Thinking about how that might have ramifications in the church life, I think it could certainly affect the way you approach evangelism, the kinds of yes. things you do in evangelism. And so to, I think to immediately dismiss that as saying that would not be an issue that churches would need to divide over. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. Yeah. And that's something I think you'd have to, to wrestle with now. Well, and, and if I could add to that, I would simply say that sometimes I think the seriousness by which we hold our doctrine determines the effect of that doctrine upon our congregation. And, I would hope that one of the one of the effects of this is to become more serious about our holding of doctrines, um, and and of course I, I'm not suggesting that means that then we're moving everything up to the first category or trying to push everything up, but our doctrine should affect us, and uh, I think sometimes we can get into the idea that uh, you know if we push a lot of things down to the third level, what we're then saying by them is that this doctrine shouldn't affect the church. Uh, but doctrine should affect the church. So uh, th there's an interplay between those two, I think, uh, where you place something and then how significant you think it actually should affect the church. Uh, so Yeah, that's a helpful thought. Now, I, I wanna take a little bit of time to, to try to think through some examples. Sure. Uh, some some doctrinal ideas, positions that people hold and and to begin to I don't know that we're going to settle it, but to begin to think through where we might place these yeah. in a first order, second order, third order, those kinds of things. So I want to begin with one that created quite a bit of debate um, in recent decades is the idea of open theism. 
There's open theism, the, the view that God uh, does not know the future because the future is still open. Yes. Uh, because people are still making their decisions. And so he's a competent God. He's working in light of the decisions. He's got a pretty good guess at what people are going to do. But the future is not set, and therefore God does not know the future. You had debates even at ETS about whether or not people who held to this view could remain part of the evangelical theological society. What level of importance, what, what kind of error is that error? I think that's a level one error. I think that's a that's a gospel issue, um, uh, because as the the doctrine that is expressed by proponents of that express a God that arguably can be different than the God of Scripture. All right. So I think here's why I would put that in the first category level issue, because I think the implications of that doctrine of God will eventually lead one away from from the gospel. Now, does am I claiming then that anyone who holds to open theism is necessarily an unbeliever at the present stage? No, I, I, I don't know that I would make that proclamation, but I would I would put that in the first category and I could see some people putting that in the second category. Uh, where would you fall on that? I, would, I think I'd put it in the first category too. Yeah. And just kind of thinking through the kind of stuff we talked about, I think the Bible is really clear. God does know the future. Yes. It certainly has really close ramifications on the nature of God. He's, he's yeah. an all knowing God. And part of the things that one of the things that distinguishes him from idols is he declares the end from the beginning yes. and he can, he can predict these things. And it does really get to the gospel too, is that how could God have, foreknown and predetermined Jesus's death. Yes. You know, and those, these kinds of things. And, and certainly it has ramifications and effects on, on broader doctrines as well. And if you look at the history of the church, it's a pretty strong consensus that God does know yes. the future. I, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who uh, I'm going to butcher his quote, but it's something along the lines of anyone who knows anything about God knows that he knows the future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he, here's the denial of that. But then the application in the church, I mean, this changes your church. I remember reading one of the major proponents of open theism was talking to a woman who had uh, gotten married to a man under her pastor's encouragement because he knew both the woman and the man and encouraged the marriage. And then the man went off the deep end. They got a divorce and she came back and said, you know, what happened? And he essentially said, uh, well, I gave you bad advice, but I, but you know, God gave you bad advice uh, because God couldn't have quite known what was going to take place in his life in the future, but you can still trust God. And, and, and he goes on, but that, I mean, is that, just imagine the ramifications of that within a church assembly, if that's how uh, you envision God. So, yeah. Right. It's a, a serious, serious error. Yes. So, so what about in Genesis 6, when it talks about the, the sons of God and they marry the daughters of men, uh, who are the sons of God and how significant is, is yeah. that question? We don't have to answer necessarily right now who, right. but how yeah. significant yeah. <laughs> is that issue? Are, are these angels? Are these the, the line of, of Seth? Who, who are these people? Yeah. Does, that, does that matter? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is an interesting one because our pastor just recently, Pastor Doran, just recently preached on this in church, and he takes a different position than I do. But he takes the same position that Dr. Compton does. And I take the same position that Dr. Dunham does. And I don't know where you land on this one, but, you know, so there's division among our own faculty on this issue. But 
I did not get up during his sermon and walk out. <laughs> I'm still a member of Inner City Baptist Church. Uh, so uh, I think that this clearly falls into, if I'm doing the three categories, into that third category issue. This isn't uh, affecting the life of our church in any way. It doesn't come close to affecting the uh, our doctrine of God, those sorts of things. I am uh, totally fine to agree to disagree on this particular topic. And Dr. Gordon, even in his message, pointed out that the, the top line issue in Jude, for example, is where he's preaching from, is really the same no matter yes, what position you take. that is exactly take. right. And this is where we're saying it doesn't have the same type of effects yes. on other beliefs and doctrines. Now, well, one that um, I think is tricky to, to work through, and, and it's uh, certainly people among uh, evangelicals wrestle with this, is the question of cessationism versus continuationism. Cessationists, those who would say that the miraculous gifts uh, prophecy, tongues, those kinds of things uh, are no longer in place in the church. They ceased sometime after the first age, the apostolic right. age of the church. And others say that they would continue and we should pursue these gifts and look for them. Yes. Where would we put that? Is that a third order issue? You know what? You can disagree. We can all minister together, be in church together. Is this a first order thing? You disagree on this. You're not a believer. Uh, should we have different churches? Where, where would we place that? Yeah, I, I personally find this a second order issue. I think uh, you would have a hard time finding unity in a church where, uh, for instance, the elders or the pastors disagreed on this issue. Uh, and that's not just simply because uh, when it comes to preaching and teaching uh, that you might disagree on particular topics. But as you mentioned, if someone is committed strongly to uh continuationism. Uh, they are, like I've heard some pastors before say, say, I'm pursuing the spiritual gifts. I'm longing to preach in tongues and I welcome that. I'm open to that. I want that to, 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 to be a part of our church. And if it's not a part of our church, then we're quenching the spirit. Okay. So that leads to a whole different, uh, effect on how you do church and what you're pursuing and how you teach and, and all of those sorts of things. So I do, I think that there could be a church where there are people who disagree on this matter. And yet for those who disagree on the matter, uh, maybe they describe themselves as cautious, but open or something like that, but they're not very open. And, uh, and they, that they're not pushing that forward. I, I could see that, but I tend to think that this in my estimation, it falls into a second order issue. Yeah, certainly you have to deal with the question. If, so someone gets up and starts speaking in tongues or someone gets up yes. and starts prophesying, do you stop them right. or do you let them do it? And that inevitably kind of comes down to what you hold on this. And, and then it add a, a layer of complexity as well. Right? So you have people who would say they have the gift of prophecy and they're prophesying things that are contrary to scripture. Yes. They're prophesying things that blaspheme God. Hmm. And they start to say, God said this would happen and then it doesn't happen. Yeah. It seems to me at that point in time, we've, we've moved up to a first order hmm. yes. kind of an issue. Yeah. And so you know, even within this category, it kind of depends on, well, what exactly do you mean? What, yes. what actually do you hold? Yes. And what, how does that play itself out within the, the ministry and, right. and what you're doing? And I think that's, that's why continuationism, cessationism is such an important topic because thought through theologically, it pertains strongly to revelation. 
I mean, there's there's a connection between the gifts and revelation. And accordingly, uh, you know, the continuation of gifts suggests to some degree that there's some sort of revelation being given. And that's why, like you say, if that uh, runs up to the first order doctrine, then, uh, you know, that can run up to the first order doctrine where we say, you know, this is this is serious. Yeah. Now, another one that that was mentioned in, in one of the 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 works, one of the, the um, models was creation. Yes. I think they specifically said the, the length of the days. Right. Now there's more to creation than just the length of the days. Yes. And so as we think about an issue like biblical creationism, some people say young earth creation versus old earth creation and, and different aspects. Is that the kind of thing where I think they place it as a third order yes. issue? Um, where, where would you put it? Yeah. So this is, this is a really difficult one because it, the reason you hold to a certain doctrine or a certain interpretation that pa of the creation passages usually has to do with a hermeneutic. And so that hermeneutic uh, has to play in how you interpret the scriptures as a whole. And so I, you know, I, I would not have a problem extending fellowship to those who disagree with me on young earth creationism. I think it could be a problem on a second order level to have disagreement at that level because it's so fundamental to uh, to our scripture and to interpretation. Uh, so that's that's my own position. And again, it seems like there's maybe different levels of this. If you have someone who, for example, says Adam was not a historical figure. Exactly. Now we've moved very much into gospel kinds of issues with Romans 5, in which the parallel between Christ and Adam doesn't really, it breaks down if yes. Adam doesn't exist. And mm -hmm. you have Jesus talking about Adam. And so now you begin to undermine, you know, the the truth about Jesus being God and knowing all things. And, yes. and so, again, it's it's not just a simple oh, this issue falls in this category. Right. On some level, it's what do you actually believe about this issue? Yes. I think, I think that's accurate. Now, a big issue, we actually even touched on this in a previous uh, podcast episode, the roles of men and women mm. in the church. Uh, I think both Orland and Moeller put women in ministry as a second order doctrine, which I assume would make sense on some level. You've got to decide, well, who's going to be a pastor? Yes. Are we going to allow women to be pastors or not? Uh, what about as we even maybe move beyond just that specific question, can a woman be a pastor? What about can a woman teach? Right. In the church, um, what kind of roles, complementarian versus egalitarian um, and, and narrow, ver egalitarian, narrow complementarian versus broad complementarian. Is that all second order? Is some of it third? Is any of it yeah. bump up to first order? No, I, I you know, I, I'm trying to think of where it might bump up to first order, but I certainly think it can bump between second and third order. Uh, I, I recall being in a church where someone was. Uh, you know, convictionally against um, a a woman reading a passage from the pulpit. Um, and I have no problem with that. Others might. And so, so, but I think that that can exist within the same congregation. Um, when it comes to women as pastors, that has huge influence on the church and uh, interpretation and other things. So that clearly is a second order doctrine. And then what, what is teaching? At what age 
do you allow a woman to teach kids? So do you cut that off at 13? Do you cut that off at 15? Can they be involved in the youth group or is that too old? Uh, do you cut that off at third grade? I, I don't know. Um, and I, so I could see some differences of opinion at that level. Uh, but I think it ranges between second and third order. And this is one of those things too, where again, sometimes you, you push to the point in which you could be an egalitarian and, and really you're undermining the authority of scripture mm. and saying, Paul got it wrong. Sure. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, he was, he was just captive to the culture of his day. And so our job is not to figure out what did he say? Our job is to look just at the trajectory yes. and try to figure out where it is. And, and now we're, we're beginning to bleed into a, a potential first order yeah. kind of thing. And so again, that's, I think probably broadly is going to fall largely in the second order. Um, but there might, there might be some spillover, right. depending upon exactly what's being taught. Um, we could go on a whole more list of these things. Hopefully, this is giving some sense of uh, how, how we'd wrestle through questions like this. Uh, just as we bring uh, come to a, con a conclusion here, what are some potential pitfalls that we need to make sure that that we are avoiding in doing theological trials. I know you, you kind of already brought up one, uh, sometimes I've heard it referred to as everythingism, in which you try to say everything's the most important thing. And right. If you disagree on anything, you're not really a Christian, you're a compromiser, you're a heretic. And so that's one error to avoid. What are some other potential pitfalls? Yeah, I think uh, I, I just mentioned a couple. First, it's possible that when somebody hears that we can order the, the doctrines, that they then think that doctrine is unimportant. Um, and I think that's a grave mistake. All doctrine is important. Um, and we're not suggesting that some are necessarily less important in themselves. They may be less impactful, less influential in how they're in, in that belief and how it's carried out in the church and that sort of thing. But everything's important. And so I, I don't want to come across in something like this to say, you know, there are a lot of things that are just totally unimportant and who cares? I don't think that's the case. I think we should be committed people and uh, God's given to us a mind and he's given to us revelation. And those are to come together in such a way that it forms and fashions us to think after our creator. And so I want as much as I can to think after my creator. And that's what I'm going to try and conform my mind to. So I'm not thinking things are uh, not important. And so, so that's, that's one potential danger. Another one is, um, and I think Ortland, uh, maybe potentially, uh, suggests this, uh, that we can minimize theological influence of doctrine. Why, why I mention him again is because he's the one who puts Calvinism, Arminianism in, uh, a third order. Um, and he says, well, maybe it can jump up to a second order. And again, I, I just think that we need to understand that theology has implications. And we can't simply say, what does somebody believe? We have to say, what, what, not only somebody else, but what do I believe? And what will that lead to? And uh, so, so that, that's the other potential danger is just looking at what they say rather than the trajectory in which they're headed by means of what they believe. And then just the final thing is not observing distinctions. So, uh, I can recognize that my Presbyterian brother and I firmly disagree about baptism, church membership, and a whole host of other things that pertain to that. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I can't have a really good relationship 
and have uh, a prayer time with his brother and, uh, you know, him be my best friend, uh, you know, th that sort of thing can, can happen. Um, so we can't take even sometimes those second order level doctrines and uh, hurt personal relationships. So we've got to observe the relational position because there are even times where I might engage with somebody um, outside of a church setting. So I couldn't plan a church with this person, but we might go do some, some form of evangelism together or something. I, I could foresee that uh, with some issues, uh, but uh, we still couldn't plan a church together. So there are differing layers of relationship that pertain to then how I view those three categories. And if I just merely say, well, you know, we disagree on the second level, see you later. I think actually we're hurting church unity because there's church unity as in like the unity of this church, but then there's a unity between me and all other believers. And, uh, and that should be secured, even if we can't worship together in the same particular assembly. Yeah, it was really helpful. And if I could just add one, I don't think this is inherent to the model, but it seems to be the inevitable result of how most people are implementing it now is that eschatology is just being minimized. Mm, yes. And I think eschatology has broader ramifications than many people want to, to recognize. And I think if I want to go again to say the influence of the church, I think sometimes our eschatology has ramifications for our understanding of the mission of the church. Yes. And what we are supposed to be accomplishing and doing in the world and broader ramifications for our approach to understanding the scripture as a whole. So I don't think it's necessarily a healthy um, emphasis right now in, in evangelicalism to make eschatology just an unimportant yeah. issue uh, because I think there's broader ramifications than often we recognize. Yeah, I'm afraid we're on that pendulum swing, right? That for one, for a historic period, eschatology seemed to be on the top of everyone's minds. And now everyone is perhaps making the error of saying, well, it really doesn't matter. But when you look at churches who, who embrace different eschatological positions and want to take that seriously, uh, that does have implications for your church. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Miller, for, for joining us. And thank you for listening to this episode of Theologically Driven. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with someone else you, you think might enjoy it as well. You can find out more about our podcast or Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. Look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.